have a seat. Over the time that I was studying at seminary, I'm not sure if this was in a lecture or if this was some book that I read. Uh, I read a, quite a, f a number of different books, or, and I heard quite a number of different lectures on the subject of preaching. And one thing that I don't remember if I heard it or read it, and I'm not saying I agree with it, um, was that uh, was someone explaining that the two most important uh, aspects, the two most important marks of an impactful sermon uh, are the introduction and the conclusion. And I'm sure the person who was saying it or writing it wasn't uh, saying that what is in the middle doesn't matter, but he was emphasizing that introduction and the conclusion are very, very important. And we know this. When we hear a sermon that grips us from the beginning, we, we tend to follow uh, it easier. Or if a sermon ends in a, in a kind of a does uh, note, we feel like, what happened here? And the illustration, again, I don't remember if I read it or if I, if I heard it, the illustration that was given was a, of a plane flying. And he said the two most important uh, events uh, in flying a plane are the takeoff and the landing. And now, as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the conclusion of our Lord's sermon. Jesus has described in his sermon, uh, in the introduction, the blessedness of the citizens, of the subjects of the kingdom of heaven. And as he starts the body of the sermon in, in verse 20 of chapter uh, five, he tells us that the, the entrance, the requirement to enter the kingdom of God, the passport to, uh, to enter the kingdom of God is to have a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And often throughout the, this sermon, and again, I believe that this is a summarized sermon. Uh, I was speaking this morning about preaching the same sermons in different places, and it was usually the case with itinerant ministry, and I'm sure our Lord uh, did this. Uh, this sermon is, uh, was preached in different ways, but in different venues. But this is a sermon that was often repeated. And there's elements of this that I could point to, but that's besides the point now. Um, or it's not the point that I want to make with this. But throughout this sermon, he has emphasized time and time again this one theme, this one uh, main point, the, ne the need for righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. In fact, the whole sermon revolves around this. The way that Jesus uh, reinterprets, perhaps not the, the, the most accurate term, but the way that Jesus expands on the laws of the Old Testament to really go to the heart of the matter. is It's him going to the heart of the matter of the need for righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a righteousness that was merely external. And Jesus is going, no, the righteousness it needs to be internal. It needs to be the righteousness that is um, fruit of the Spirit of God. It is not something that you can fabricate. It is something that is given. It is something that is uh, a work of the Spirit. And last week we, 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 see, we saw that Jesus returned to this theme of righteousness and of entering the kingdom of heaven when we consider that passage where 
he teaches the disciples or commands the disciples to keep asking, to pray with perseverance, to ask and seek and knock. We saw that he was again bringing this, this idea of entering the kingdom of God through striving, through, through, uh, through effort. And now we come to the conclusion. Having said all of this, our Lord, uh, in today's passage, that's why we're doing a, the, the big uh, overview of this, uh, this, these verses. He concludes his sermon very much in the, in the way that preachers throughout the centuries have done, by, in the conclusion, bringing the point home, by emphasizing, by, by calling for a clear, or making a clear call to action, to obedience and to dedication, he wants to leave nothing to chance or misinterpretation. Just in case, uh, as often the preacher says, just in case you're not paying, we're not paying attention, this is the main point. If you don't take anything else from this sermon, take this home. If you forget everything else, remember this. This is the, what Jesus is doing now. He's wrapping up, landing the plane, telling us the, the, in, in, in quick su succession the gist of his teaching. The point that of this passage is clear. If you're an unbeliever, you cannot mistake, you cannot misinterpret the words of Jesus. If you're n not a citizen of the kingdom, the exclusive claims of the kingdom of God are there for, to be seen. If you're not a member of this kingdom, you don't belong. There is no middle way. There is no via media. You're either in it or you're outside of it. But I believe that often, coming to this passage, we, we miss the main point that Jesus intended uh, for this passage to us as believers. So often the, the, the narrow way uh, and the, the fruits and the, uh, the building on the rock are used as evangelistic passages. And they are there and they can be used to preach the gospel, to persuade and exhort uh, unbelievers to... To, to repent and believe. But I think we, because we so much in, uh, focus this on the evangelistic side of it, when we come to, to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we lose track of what Jesus is telling us. Because this Sermon on the Mount, as we have emphasized time and time again, is not Jesus talking to the world, pleading with them, persuading them to become Christians, to become disciples. It's Jesus teaching his disciples what is the kingdom of God? And I think the, the clear message in this conclusion is one that, that is undeniable. The kingdom of God makes a radical claim. Being a citizen of the kingdom or, or, or the kingdom of God makes a radical claim in our lives. You're either in it or you're not in it. And this is not just in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the whole message of the New Testament. In fact, you could even say it's the message of the Bible. The people of God are to be a holy people. They are not to mix themselves with the world. They are to be separate from the world. A separation that is uh, more, more in the New Testament. This is when, when, when it really, the rubber meets the road. In the Old Testament, this is kind of shadows and, and types. We don't, we don't see it as clearly. But the separation that the New Testament demands the radical commitment and holiness that the New Testament requires of disciples is one that is not just you look different, 
you have different ceremonies, you have different ways of dressing, uh, or you, you look different. The radicalness of, of being separate from the world that the, the New Testament requires of the church, and I would say that the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes here at the end, is that we are fundamentally different, that we need to be. Otherwise, we're fooling ourselves. As we'll see, we're like those in, in, in verse 21. We're those that say, Lord, Lord, oh, well, haven't we done all these things? And, and actually, we find out that the Lord never knew us. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to call us to examine, are we really like this? And I think we can do this both individually, and we can do this as a church, as a congregation, as a body, a local body of God's people. Someone once wrote a, a, a book, it's a good book, uh, a book that I would recommend all of us to read, uh, Mark Dever, a pastor from, from the States. He wrote a book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And I'm not going to call this sermon The Nine Marks because I don't have nine points, but I have four marks of a healthy church. There are four marks here in the conclusion of Jesus' sermon that tells us how to distinguish a healthy church, a church that knows the, the well-defined borders of what it means to be in the kingdom or in the world that, that, that make up this distinction. You're either in it or you're out. And again, the point is that we need to be different. We need to be salt. We need to be light. As we saw when we were looking at the Beatitudes, the, the blessedness of the, uh, of the character of the citizens of the kingdom is completely at odds with how the world acts and looks uh, uh, at these things. For us, being poor of spirit is actually being rich. It's all uh, uh, upside down in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, it's the right side up. So we'll look at the four marks uh, in quick succession, and then we'll, we'll conclude by looking at, the, at those last two verses that tells us about the reaction to the sermon by those who were listening. So first of all, Jesus says, verse 13 and 14, that there are only two ways. The world loves to have many different ways. They love to say, oh, there's many ways to go to God. At the end, everything leads, every, every road leads to God. And they, and they have all kinds of metaphors and illustrations that they try to convince us that, that this is the case. One that, is, that was quite prevalent uh, a few years ago that you would listen to people say, oh, this, this thing about religion is kind of like a, a, someone hugging a, an elephant, but they're blind. Well, you're, some people might be hugging the, the, the leg, and it, it, they think that they, uh, but some people might be hugging the trunk. The, all of them, they're embracing God, but they're just embracing a different part of God. Now, you've probably heard some illustration along these lines. You know where the problem is with this kind of illustration when you, when you say, oh, well, we just have a different perspective. We're looking at it from different ways, but we're all looking to God. We're all moving towards God. All roads lead to God. The problem with the illustration is that God's spoken. Whatever any other religion says about it, Christianity makes an exclusive claim. The God of the Bible is not the same as the gods of other religions. Because the God of the Bible says, I'm the only way. The, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. There is exclusivity. So you're either in it or you're out. 
And Jesus makes it quite clear in the conclusion of the sermon. There are only two doors, two gates, and there are only two ways. There's a wide door and a wide way. Through the wide door, people can go uh, arm in arm, embracing one another. They can bring everything that they want, all the baggage, all the luggage that they want with them. And you get to the wide way, and, and there's a lot of people there. You can find people that uh, think just like you. And if you don't like some of the people in that wide way, you just go a little bit further up, and you'll find other people that think like you. Nothing is forbidden. The only thing that is forbidden in the wide way, and in the, uh, as you go through the wide gate into the wide way, the only thing that is forbidden is to forbid. They're very tolerant when it comes to that. They just are not tolerant of, of other people's views. But Jesus says, this one way makes it, makes it clear so that no one misunderstands him. This one way leads you to hell. This one le way leads you to perdition. But then there's, there is another gate. There is another way. And he says, the one other gate is narrow. The other, the other way is, is, is uh, difficult to traverse. But that leads to life. So, number one, the road to perdition is a road to, of limit, limitless freedoms. That's what we want, isn't it? Humanly speaking, that's what we want. We want everything to be allowed for us, everything to be given to us. We want pleasures, amusements, we want uh, joy, success, we want fame, we, we want uh, to rights, no responsibilities, we want privileges, no duties, we want uh, immediate uh, pleasure, instant gratific gratification, nothing withheld from you. That's the way of the world. That's how the world acts. But Jesus says there is another way. The way of the kingdom is a way of renunciation, of sacrifice. It requires effort. It's winding, it's steep, it's narrow, it's often lonely, it's not really completely lonely because when you find people on that way, there is a kindred of spirit that you will never find in this world. There is a, a, a oneness of mind. But it seems to those outside, it seems lonely. But its end is glory and eternal life. So that's the one. The kingdom of God is exclusive. The other is that the, the, the issue, as Jesus says, that the kingdom of God needs to beware of false prophets. Oh, there are many who will come with, with nice tales saying, you can have this. Did God really say the first, the first temptation? That's what we find in our day. There are many false prophets. And Jesus says that these false prophets, number one, they, are, they seem harmless. They look um, innocuous. You look at them and you say, well, it's not that bad. What bad can this do? If I only take a bite of this fruit. They present themselves as sheep, but really they are murderers of truth. They bend, they twist. They walk around with, with the Bible or with, with some fancy teaching that, that presents itself as spiritual. They have a, a, a smooth voice. They're persuasive persuasive they're eloquent they they are very very sharp and smart they look harmless but jesus says don't be fooled by them they're harmless they're not harmless uh, sheep they're ravening wolves and the the language of false prophets again 
Uh, Matthew always points us back to the Old Testament. That's, that's kind of the way that he uh, structured the, the, the gospel of Matthew is, uh, is to shed light on the, on the fulfillment of those promises, those prophecies, those types and shadows in the Old Testament. Uh, false prophets were all over the Old Testament. They tickled the fancies of, uh, of the people uh, listening. And Jesus himself, later on, in, even in the, chapter, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, will, he speaks that there will come antichrists, false prophets, false Christ, they, and they will lead many astray. Paul speaks of the, the apostles, the Judaizers, the super apostles, those that pretended to be apostles and, and, and were deceiving people. He tells Timothy to beware of the, of the Gnostics, of those who, who would um, deceive the people of God. Again, they seem harmless. Actually, they seem that their message often will seem like it is what we, just what we need. But really, it's not what you need. It's what you wanted. And Jesus tells us we need to beware. Jesus also said that these false prophets are known not just for seeming armless, or they are actually known by their doctrine and their works. He's not only a wolf, Jesus then uses the illustration of a tree. Look at how they act. Look at what they say. What are the fruits that come out of his message? The message coming out of his mouth might seem truthful and good and sweet and pleasant, but it's actually poison. It destroys. It offers no nutrition. I often don't do this because I think there's enough of it going around in, in churches of, in, in more conservative evangelicalism. But it's true. Look at the churches uh, that have compromised and you listen to the messages and there's no nutrition, no challenging, no conviction, just a nice, pleasant message that kind of lifts you up and leaves you feeling like you're in a, in a cloud. No challenge. It's poison. How are you to grow if God's word is not expounded faithfully? And I'll say this, I, I, just as an aside. I, I honestly think that one of the great blessings, probably one of the great, not threats, but one of the great uh, things that will condemn us or that work to, to against us is the accessibility that we have to, for teaching. And I'll say this, I don't mind people listening to other preachers. I think it's good. You, we have access to, to sermons the, that even if we started today listening to sermons uh, and never stopped, not even to sleep, we, we'd spend the rest of our lives and we wouldn't even scratch the surface of the abundance of biblical teaching that we have. But Jesus, what he calls us is to be careful. There are many who pretend themselves to be faithful, true prophets, but they're actually deceiving. And you know this. Many who say that they believe in God, but all, the, all that they do is try and twist and juggle and do cra uh, crafty acrobatics with God's word to satisfy their deepest longings. Perhaps the, the most relevant, uh, close one to closer to home and to our context is the, this whole thing about uh, homosexuals getting married. How many churches have been compromising on this? 
twisting God's word. They're false prophets. Beware, Jesus says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Jesus says they will be condemned. Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Their doom is, is inescapable. Their destiny is destruction. And Jesus says that they need to be identified. They have wrong theology. They have wrong living. Their fruits are clear. makes them bad trees. And we're not called to, to, to expunge, uh, expunge them or, or take them away. But we are called to know them. In fact, then Paul says we're called to name them. And to depart from them. And you might ask, how do we do that? How is it that, that we uh, find out who, who the false teachers are? Read your Bible. Study it. Meditate upon it. It's not just your pastor's job to do it. It's not even your pastor's job to do it. It's your job to know it. Because your pastor might actually be a ravenous wolf. And if you're just trusting blindly the pastor, he will lead you astray. The only safeguard that we have as Christians, as disciples of Christ, is to know our scriptures as much as we can. To pray, to ask, to seek, to, to knock, that the Spirit would apply the word. That the word would in fact be the light upon our path. The lamp for our feet. Thirdly, a mark, well, let's call it that. I'm not sure if it works that well. Um, it's kind of a, a last-minute uh, change here. But the fourth mark of a, a, a healthy church, according to Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, is, the, uh, is judging and masking false believers. It is the role of the church to make sure that the membership, that those who belong to the church are truly believers. It's a sad tale. It's a, caution, it's a cautionary tale that often happens in... Uh, it probably it's connected to the last point. It's a cautionary tale that sadly often happens in our Presbyterian brethren churches, in, uh, in our brothers in the Presbyterian churches. Because they don't have this uh, regenerate membership uh, view, if you're born into a Christian family, you belong to the church, you're baptized into the church, and when you uh, become an adult, unless you have reneged or, or apostatized, you're assumed to be a Christian. You don't need to, to, to be converted in that sense. You don't need to be accepted. You already belong. What happens in those churches, and it's a, it's, we've had 400 years of this, is that the first generation, they're believers. They plant the church. They're zealous. They're faithful. The second generation starts to... to water down. The third generation, they don't even know what they believe anymore. And then the, the, the Presbyterian Church, uh, of, well, in, in America you, ha you had the, the PCUSA, became so apostatized that then they, they, they separated on the mission and became the PCA and the OPC and now you look at the PCA and you start to see that 30 years down the line the PCA is also losing its, its track. You find it in Scotland happened. Why? Because the church membership was not regenerate. Because there was no, no care given to making sure those who belong. But if the church membership is regenerate, and if they are these who are, beware, uh, they are aware of false prophets and are guarding against uh, the clension, the church remains. 
The church thrives. The church purifies itself with time. But our text reveals, doesn't it? I've once heard this, this passage being called, verse 21 being the, called the, uh, the most, um, what was it? The most frightening passage in the whole of the Bible. Verse 21, the most frightening passage in the whole of the Bible. And it's frightening. Think about it. These people profess. These people actually have works in some way. You want to know how, what's the worth of your profession of faith according to scripture? Your profession of faith is worth nothing. Your profession of faith is worthless if it's alone. You want to know what your works are worth if they are alone? They're worth nothing. Because a true believer, according to Jesus, a true disciple of Christ, a true citizen of heaven, is not known only, or primarily, or well, not primarily, is not only known by what he professes. Again, if you're a believer, if you're a true Christian, you will profess. But that's not the, the only thing that you will make you known as a Christian. Just because you say it doesn't make you one. These false believers, they called upon Jesus. They, they called him intensely and, and affectionately, Lord, Lord. But there is a somewhat of a gulf. I'm not sure if it's between what they say and what they do, because apparently they also do things. Apparently they prophesy in the name of Christ. They cast out demons in the name of Christ, and they've done many wonders in his name. So it's not just the professing and doing Jesus puts it even beyond the doing. Because that's the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees professed and they did. You would be very uh, strained to, to point out to a Pharisee and say that he wasn't doing. He was doing. But it was the fact, the, the reason, the heart behind what he was doing. It wasn't because of love and uh, for the Lord. It wasn't because he, he, he desi desired to do the Father's will. It was because he desired to build himself up. For him, in the mathematics of belonging to the kingdom, uh, or in the mathematics of, of religiosity, it was more profitable for him to be religious than to be irreligious. It was more profitable to, to, for him to be uh, outwardly moral uh, than, be, than not be. He was, uh, uh, for, for the Pharisees, was more profitable to them to be like the older son in the, the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother. He was just as lost. He, he lacked just as much of a relationship with the father, perhaps even more so than the, the prodigal son, the younger brother. But yet for him, all things considered, it was best for him to stay home and to be uh, somewhat outwardly obedient with no love or respect for the father. These are the ones that Jesus is talking about. Those that in the day of judgment... We'll say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of this? You can always tell that they are not really Christians. Because a true Christian, if they found themselves barred at the entrance of the gates of heaven, I would hope, and I assume that no true Christian would start pointing out to the things they did. Oh, I did this. I did that. Oh, I, I prayed the prayer once, Lord. And the preacher said that if, if I was honest and sincere, that, that I was saved. That's a mark of a false believer. 
It's those who know the will of the Father. So you're not known by what you profess. Or you're, you're, you're not, uh, what makes you a Christian is not what you profess. Or it's not even your outward works. Jesus says, it's doing the desire to do the will of God. It's the obedience that flows from a desire to do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? That we would know Christ, that we would believe him, and that we would repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in him and him alone. That is the passport for the entrance in heaven. A true believer is distinguished from a false believer, and this is important as well, ultimately in the day of judgment. This is not to excuse because the church needs to have uh, a role in, in making sure that those that belong to the church are true believers as much as they can. It's the holding of the keys of heaven. Discipline needs to happen in the church, Matthew 18. So there is, there is a need for judgment, or for, for discernment. But ultimately, a true believer is only distinguished from an unbeliever. Some of them will only be in heaven, as we see in verse 23. But what Jesus says here is, it doesn't suffice to make verbal homage. It doesn't suffice to, to be very obedient uh, outwardly, to look very pious. Your creed and your, your conduct don't, don't buy you uh, an entrance into heaven. You can belong to the most faithful church, most uh, perfect church, to the most uh, uh, fruitful church, that doesn't give you an entrance into heaven. Your father, your mother, your grandfather, your grandmother, your uncles, they can all be nice, good, faithful Christians. That doesn't buy you entrance into heaven. It's being known by Christ. It's knowing him and being known by him. It is the most frightening verse in the Bible. I Very rarely you come to this passage and you don't wonder to yourself, am I one of these, Lord? Am I one of these? But finally, fourthly, fourth mark of a healthy church, according to Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, is the foundation. Jesus ends his famous sermon by citing two builders, two houses, two foundations, and two outcomes. Again, leaving nothing to be wondered if there is another way. There is only one way. Or there are only two ways. One leads to heaven and eternal life. The other leads to hell and eternal damnation. There's one house. Both of them are faced with the same circumstances. You have rain. You have wind. You have uh, floods. You kind of see the encompassing element, right? Rain comes from the top down. Wind comes from the, the side. Floods, it's as if it comes from the ground up. All of it uh, surrounds from high to low, as Spurgeon says. And on every side, trials come. Rain, floods, and wind. No shield. But there's one house that stands. It's a house that is built upon the great foundation that Christ Jesus is. On the solid rock. That's the wise builder, the one who hears and does, the one who hears and obeys, the one who knows the voice of his master, the sheep that know their master's voice and their master knows them by name. 
It is Christ that is the foundation. Nothing else. If our allegiance uh, or our foundation is our really nice uh, heritage, reformed Protestant, um, reformed Baptist heritage, our puritanical uh, descendants, uh, or if our, if our uh, foundation is our, our, our particular Baptist uh, creeds, if our foundation is anything else but Christ, we're building on the wrong foundation. However beautiful it might look on the outside, it is Christ and Christ alone that we stand. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. Even though they profess to, to, to have Abraham as their father, to obey the voice of Moses, to revere and worship God, but reality is that they rejected Jesus. Therefore, they rejected the only foundation. It is clear. Well, technically, you can even say that they rejected both Abraham, Moses, and, and God in, in doing this. But, but Because you cannot have them with, without having Christ. They rejected Christ, so they rejected all of it. Because that's what they pointed us, uh, that's what Abraham and Moses were pointing us to. But you build on the foundation of God's, of Christ. That's the only foundation. That's the only solid ground in his word. In his word. Isn't it interesting? From the start, where are all the attacks of, of the world and the devil, and even if our flesh pointed towards throughout history, even from the beginning and first sin, it's did God really say? Genesis 3, serpent comes to, to Eve to tempt her. Where does the serpent, where does the devil focus his attack? On God's word, did God really say? And throughout history, that's been the, the case. Did God really say? It was there in the beginning with the, with the Judaizers in the days of Paul, with agnostics at the end, towards the end of the first century uh, that John the Apostle uh, fought so strongly against. It was there throughout the Middle Ages. Did God really say that Christ is to be the head of the church? We quite fancy having... Uh, the bishop of Rome as the head, as the mediator, as the, 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 the substitute, as the, uh, as the vicar of Christ. Or we would actually want to have Mary as, as a, a co-mediatrix because uh, Jesus just seems too stern. We, we want to have Mary as our intermediator between uh, us and Jesus and then Jesus between uh, to the Father. It's, did God really say it's the same attack. Throughout the 18th century, within the Enlightenment, the 19th century with liberalism, the, the 20th century with, with uh, uh, neoliberalism, uh, to the 21st century with the attacks on God's word with regards to sexuality and the roles, of, uh, the complementarian roles that the Bible is so clear about. To, on uh, the secularism, wanting to bring the church into the worlds for the sake of being relevant. Why do we want to be relevant and sacrifice that which Christ gave us? Jesus says, no, none of that. Christ, me and me alone, I and I alone am the foundation, both individually in our lives, for our faith, 
for any congregation that is a local church, a representation of the universal church in a local community. It's Christ and only him that delivers us from the judgment to come. Those are the four marks. And I'll, I'll just conclude quickly, since we are at the end of, of the Sermon on the Mount. We probably won't be returning uh, in September to Matthew. Still uh, an open question, but, but we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount by considering the two verses that it finishes with. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus finishes the sermon and people were shocked besides themselves in wonder of what they just heard. They were amazed. And if you understand what Jesus did, you, you would be amazed as well. If you were a Jew living in the first century, you would be astounded because Jesus was not only teaching the truth, he was teaching as one who had authority. When you heard the scribe expound the word, when you heard the scribe a teach or a rabbi teach the word, it was always so-and-so, uh, rabbi so-and-so said this, and then rabbi so-and-so said that. But here Jesus says, but I say to you, it's me telling you. That's the radical uh, nature of this sermon. Jesus puts himself as the guarantor as the seal of approval of his own words. That's shocking. Can you imagine me as a pastor coming here and say, not with the, the, the guarantee of scripture and start decline, uh, uh, decreeing stuff that is not in the Bible. And it's, why? Because I say so. That's not, but that's how Jesus came across to them. But he had the authority. And one of the main themes of, of, uh, of uh, the book of Matthew is the authority of Jesus. In fact, it finishes by Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. They were amazed at his authority. They were astounded because he spoke like one who had royal uh, decree, that, as one who was truly a king, full of majesty. He not only expounded, he legislated in his own authority. Truly, I say to you, Jesus challenged the, the old interpretations and traditions of the scribes. He expounded not as a commentator, as preachers so often do, and you should, because we're commenting, we're expounding what the word says. But he was not as a commentator. He was like as the royal legislator, as the one who has authority to say it. And he then goes on to finish with a claim that for me is nothing short of claiming to be God. When he says, if you hear my voice. Can you imagine? Not, not a single prophet in the whole of the Old Testament was ever able to lay a claim like that. They spoke in the name of God. Thus says the Lord. And here Jesus, which for me it's a claim of divinity clearly showing that he, that he was God, he says, it's my voice that you need to hear. So for us, the question is, having heard his voice, having come to, to, the, to the beach where our houses are built, where are we building them? Individually or as a church? 
Are we building them upon the sand of our own fancy? Or are we listening to the voice of Christ, seeking to do the Father's will? Are we following the masses as they go careening down that precipice towards hell? Or are we following through the narrow path, through the narrow road, struggling, but yet going to eternal life? The crowds were amazed, but it was superficial. You can be amazed this, this evening. Perhaps you are amazed at the teaching of Jesus. Perhaps you never heard it. Well, they wouldn't be surprised if this is the first time you're hearing about this. And you're amazed. Those crowds also were amazed, but it was not, there was nothing more than their ama that amazement. It was superficial. The, real, the reaction or the answer that we should give to this sermon, the true answer, is to realize that none other than the Son of God gave us these words. And that none other than him has claim for this. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When all around my soul gives, sway, gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. No other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus, Paul says. Nevertheless, this solid foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his. Let every one that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In just a few moments after we sing our final hymn, we will be celebrating just that. Indeed, that is the, the mark of, the, of, the, of a true church, obedience. Obedience to Christ's commands. And he has told us to celebrate it. Often. And that what this marks is precisely that. That we belong to him. That he knows us. That on the last day, we won't be pounding on the outside of the door. Because we know that he knows us. And we know him. We know that he loves him, us. And we love him. We have that personal relationship with him. We are known by him, loved by him. But the other side is that we are, as we know that we are his, we also know that we are called to be holy, to be separate, to be distinct. The whole thing about being called the saints. So often Paul addresses the church as the saints of God in, in Ephesus or in Philippi. Saints means to be separate. To depart from evil. To depart from the world. We're in the world but we're not of the world. We're not conformed to the world. But we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the cup and the, and the, and the breath. That represent the blood. And the Christ's body broken. Speak to us of the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins. Is not a license to sin more. Far be it. God forbid. As Paul says. We won't sin so that grace may abound. No, because we've been saved, because we've been graced by the forgiveness of the Father through the work of the Son. We now long 
to live holy lives. So as we partake of these elements, let this ordinance remind us that we are called to live righteous, holy lives for the Lord. Let us remember that we are known and loved by the Lord, we are called, but we are also called to live lives worthy of that love. And let us do so with gratitude, striving to, be, to live lives that are